You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Jotham S. Stein, who has more than 25 years of experience representing entrepreneurs, C-suite executives, board members, venture capitalists, private equity principals, investment bankers, as well as employees of companies, all types of sizes. Mr. Stein has negotiated numerous employment agreements, separation agreements, MMA agreements, change of control agreements, stock option agreements, restricted stock agreements, management carve-out agreements, non-compete agreements, and much more. On today's episode, we talk about his brand new book, Negotiate Like a CEO, and we ask questions such as, what is better, to get a two-page offer letter or a 50-page offer letter, and why? Should negotiations be done face-to-face or with the new world, is Zoom okay? What are the areas of an employment contract that can be negotiated? And what are single action and double action triggers in a contract? This and much more on today's episode. Now, today's episode could change your life for your next job or your next opportunity. So pay attention, listen to this multiple times, get the book and more. And remember, when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley Podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker. Connect with me and let's have a conversation. All right, now let's begin this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Jotham, I'm super excited for today's episode. I read your book while in Puerto Rico. It's It's an amazing read. I mean, you could sit down and just spend a weekend going through and the knowledge you'll gain is basically it it could impact your life. 10x what you're what I'm even leading this to to be. I mean, when you read this book, it's a game changer. But before even getting into your book, can you give us a little background of your career up until this point? Sure. But before I do that, I want to thank you for having me on your show, Sean. Uh, I actually practice in Silicon Valley. I'm a lawyer and I live over in Half Moon Bay. So it's great to be here local. Uh, on your podcast. My career is I I now represent a lot of entrepreneurs, executives, and a whole bunch of other people, regardless of their position at companies or uh, what they do in their situations, often hiring, firing, stock options, protecting entrepreneurs when they start companies. And I've been doing that for more than 25 years. Uh, I wound up, I'm originally from the East Coast, grew up on Long Island, went to Princeton on the East Coast in New Jersey as an undergrad, then uh, came out after taking a couple of years off and went to Stanford Law School. And I was very fortunate to be here with the growth of all the Silicon Valley economy and the startups and so forth, and went to a big firm for a couple of years and then hung out my own shingle. And I've been practicing ever since. And I'm guessing you really miss the winters and the weather from the East Coast. I do not at all. I am actually love to ski. I'm uh, still skiing, and uh, but I'm a snow-on-demand guy. I love to drive up Feta Tahoe, and at about 5,000 or 6,000 feet, there's snow. And then you come back down and can go out to lunch and, uh, you know, in the middle of the winter here. So Now, your book, Negotiate Like a CEO, there's so many, so much advice on different parts of the employment contract to negotiate to everything. But you know, just let's just start with that, the employment contract. What is some gotchas, some terms, some verbiage that might be in there that someone should be aware of? First of all, you should read your employment contract or offer letter. I can't tell you how many people don't really read it or study it. Secondly, you should know what every word means and what you're getting. There's a lot of things to be concerned about in an employment contract or an offer letter. And they're essentially the same thing, although one could be two pages long and the other might be 30 or 40 pages. And what you have to look out for is how much you're going to make, 
you know, what your compensation is going to be. If you have stock options or a restricted stock or other kinds of equity, um, you have to be aware of what that is. What are the underlying contracts? These contracts, uh, offer letter employment contract always says, or almost always says, okay, you're going to get a certain amount of equity. For example, it's subject to these other, other agreements. Well, if you don't read those other agreements, you have no idea what you're signing up for. Similarly, if you're getting paid by, um, by commissions, for example. What's your com- what's really the commission plan? Is it specific or is it you know are you, are you have metrics or don't you have metrics? All the, and when will you be paid? You have to be there on the depending on what state you're in. Sometimes you have to actually be there on the date you get paid. In other states, you only have to be there on the end of the commission um, time period. So there's often a period between when the commission plan time period metric ends and when you actually get paid. And so there are depending on what state you're in, where you are. You have to be aware of everything that's in that contract. I mean, it's your life going forward, right? It's your family, it's your career, it's it's your um, money and compensation. So read it carefully and understand what each word says and read a book like mine, Negotiate Like a CEO or some other book that'll tell you not only what you should be looking out for, but what the other side, in this case, if an employment agreement, the company, your employers or would-be employer, what they're thinking metaphorically, because companies don't think, but individuals think, what they're thinking, what they're trying to protect themselves against. And when you understand that, you'll have full information. Otherwise, if you don't know what the other side's thinking, how can you go into any negotiation? Even right there, there's a lot of vocabulary used that I think we're going to have to dive into later, RSUs, ISOs, or for the stock. There's also one thing that really kind of kind of piqued my interest right there, being there on the commission date. Do you mean still being employed by the company on the commission date or being in person? What, what was that? So let's take a year commission plan. Let's say from January 1st to December 31st, you're going to make a certain amount of money or be bonused in a certain way. And let's say you even have metrics, whether it's revenue metrics, sales of product metrics, whatever it is. So you know that on December 31st, you've either hit the metric or you haven't. On December 31st, it goes to January 1st. You won't get paid maybe on whatever you think you're going to get paid until, let's just say, March 1st. Could be February 15th. Could be some other date. All right. What happens during the period of time from December 31st in this example until February 15th or March 1st when you get paid? If your employment is terminated, let's just make believe in this example on January 15th, the question is, will you be paid for that commission for the prior year or the bonus for the prior year? In certain states like California, probably because you've earned that payment on on December 31st at the end of the commission plan or the bonus. In other states, other jurisdictions, you actually... If the contract says you have to be deployed on March 1st in this example or February 15th to get paid for what you did the prior year and your ter- and your employment is terminated on January 15th, you won't be paid. And it's, it's hard to imagine maybe for you because you're out here and it's a dynamic Silicon Valley, but I can't tell you how much, how many commission fights, commission payment fights I've seen in my career for, for even clear commission plans. But those that aren't clear... You would not believe the number. It happens over and over again today, yesterday, year ago, five years ago. And so what, what, when you ask me, what do you have to look out for? If, you, if you're a commission-based employee or bonus, bonuses are really important to you, as they are to some, then know exactly what you're being bonused for and understand whether it's completely discretionary, where you probably don't have any rights at all, or whether it's based on metrics. And if it's based on metrics, make sure you understand how you measure those metrics. Now, is that more state by state or more employer by employer? Both. Uh, it's employer by employer, depending on when they plan to pay you and where they're going to have metrics in their bonus plan, or it's going to be completely discretionary. It's state by state in terms of when you earn that, when that bonus is earned and when it has to be paid. So an example of California, if you have a commission plan that goes for a year onto December 31st and you get fired on January 1st, I'm not giving legal advice here, but almost pretty much assured in California, you're going to get paid for that bonus period. 
In other states, other jurisdictions, no. The contract says you have to be standing on the finish line. You have to be employed on March 1st when the bonus payments or commission plan is actually paid out and you're fired on January 1st, you won't get paid. Oh, that's interesting. Now, you mentioned metrics. Going into the, the employment contract, you might, I mean, those, those metrics, how much of that information can you ask for in that time when, when you're having that conversation? I, I'm guessing what I'm trying to say is what can be negotiated in these contracts? So in an employment agreement or offer letter, and I'm using them the same here, because as I said, an offer letter that's two pages long can have one or two or three sentences in there that protect you, the employee, more than some 50-page contract. And I give an example of that in, my, in the book. I, I spent a page or two giving an example of how a two-page offer letter with the right words in it can be more protective. And in the example in the book is with about stock and stock options than, say, a 50-page 50 page or 30-page employment agreement. But going back to your question of what can be negotiated, everything can be negotiated in an employment relationship other than something that's void against public policy. So you can't negotiate, classic example is somebody paying you for sex. That's a, that can't be negotiated. You can't write that in the contract. You can write it in, but it's not enforceable. Certain other things are not enforceable. For example, something that I'll give you specific because I use sex on one example, you cannot waive your right as an employee to statutory indemnification under the California Labor Code. If you are in California, in another jurisdiction, whatever the indemnification rules are there, you might be able to. So it's a void against public policy to do that. Similarly, in California, using that as an example in a few other states, I think Oklahoma and North Dakota, you cannot write in a non-compete agreement that's employment-based into a, for the most part. There's ways that some companies, particularly the investment banks in New York, try to get around that. But in California, non-competes are, are avoid against public policy in the employment relationship. Different if you sell a company, then, then you, of course, can be a subject to a non-compete. But other than those things that are void against public policy, everything can be negotiated. You can negotiate the terms of your employment. You can negotiate whether you get paid severance or have protection. That's what I talk about in the book. You can negotiate whether your equity, your stock vests for accelerated vesting if you get terminated, for example, without cause, or you have good reason to resign. You can negotiate compensation. You can negotiate, in using this example, the commission plan, you can negotiate your metric or attach attach if you have the leverage and the other side's willing and you're willing to negotiate, attach the first year's metrics to your, as an exhibit to your offer letter. You can also have guaranteed bonus for the first year, as a lot of people like to do who, who have bonuses or a signing bonus. You can negotiate that. So everything could be negotiated. If you have the leverage and the willingness to negotiate, you being the employee or would-be employee, whether you're a first level, first year employee or you're the CEO, and the other side's willing to negotiate. So you'd also mention, you know, a two-page agreement could be more protective than a 50-page. If you were an employee, which would you rather get presented to you? A two-page, a 30-page, a 50-page? What, what would be ideal? If I'm the employee? Yeah. If I'm the employee, I don't care how long that, that, that offer letter is. What I care about is having the words in that offer letter that protect me. So again, what I talk about is the goal is, is that... You, why is the name of the book Negotiate Like a CEO? Let's start with that. The reason why the name of the book is Negotiate Like a CEO is what do CEOs do? They almost always negotiate their protection, their separation agreement, their exit agreement on day one before they ever start work. Why do they do that? Every CEO I know, and I've represented hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, they all think that they're going to make this company, whatever company they're going into in whatever area they're going into, the biggest thing since sliced bread. They all think that. But they also know that things sometimes don't work out and CEOs get fired just like everybody else. And so they protect themselves on day one. They've negotiated their separation agreement. So my point is everybody can do that do that as well. And you can negotiate 
every term in the contract if you have leverage. So going back to the question, the question is, I don't care whether it's a two-page offer letter or a 50-page offer letter. What I care about is what the protection is. So get, let me give you an example. Let's say your two-page offer letter says, should I use equity? I guess we're in Silicon Valley, I use equity. If your employment is terminated for any reason or no reason at all, except for embezzlement, let's say, you will receive full acceleration on all of your options so that they would be fully vested and you will have three years after your termination date to exercise them. All right, that's it. one sentence I just said, right? Now, let's say uh, that's in a one-page or two-page offer letter. That's more protective with respect to options than, let's say you have a 50-page agreement and it says, if you're terminated without cause or for good reason, and they broadly define cause so they can terminate you for any reason at all, you will receive accelerated vesting of one year of your options and you will have to exercise them within 90 days of the termination date of your employment. Would I rather have the one-page offer letter using equity only as an example or the 50-page agreement? I'd rather have the one-page offer letter. Why? Because I have full acceleration on my vesting if I'm terminated without cause, what cause is incredibly narrowly defined. I only have to do embezzlement. And plus I get three years after the, my termination date to sit there and wait to, to exercise them. So what can happen in three years in a startup company, even in a mid-level company or in mature companies? Well, they can go really, do really well, in which case I'd want to exercise my shares, or they can go bankrupt, in which case I wouldn't want to exercise my shares. Now, why wouldn't I want to exercise my shares if their company goes bankrupt? Because I'm going to pay more for the option than they're actually, the, the shares than they're actually worth. So there are multiple things I just gave in your exa this example that we could probably speak for hours and hours about. That, that are, a lot of this is described in the book. But what I was trying to say is, for me, I only care what the protection is for going forward, what my professional prenuptial agreement is. You'd mentioned, you know, CEO and leverage. What should a person be thinking about in that when they hear that word leverage, how does that imply? And how much leverage does an employee have? Let's start with leverage is context dependent. It is who the employee is, where they are, what field they're in, what their level is, how much the company wants you. And it makes a big difference. First year students that are coders, they have a lot of leverage or a significant amount of leverage. I wouldn't say they don't have a leverage like a CEO, but, but a lot of companies need them. They're in short supply. So if a company needs you and they identified you as a good coder in your first year out of, out of college, um, you would have leverage not to get everything a CEO would, but you might be able to say, okay, if you terminate my employment after you know, six months or, or a year, I want some accelerated vesting. Um, you might be able to get that. You might be able to get use your leverage to say, no, I won't take X as a salary, but I will take X plus 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 as a salary. So uh, other people don't have as much leverage and you work all the way up to the CEO. And it really depends even there. How much does the CEO want the job? How much does the, the board want to hire the CEO? What area field are they in? Uh, what's the experience at the company and so forth? A lot of factors you need to understand to be able to negotiate. Well, then, I mean, to find out what you can negotiate, what questions should you ask in the interview? To know, okay, I negotiate that. I can. I have leverage here. I don't have as much leverage as I might have thought. Or, I mean, how can you go about asking those questions? Or what should you be asking questions on? So I wouldn't do it in the job interview at all. You don't want to talk the terms of your. In the job interview, you want to sell yourself, whether that's directly or indirectly, and you want to show interest in the, in in whatever your position is and what you'd be doing there. So it's after you get the job offer. Typically, not always. Listen, there are a lot of times, particularly on a, on a very senior level, a C-suite level, where a conversation happens between the board or the CEO, if the CEO is doing the hiring and the C-suite level, about what 
the terms of the employment might be, and there's maybe indications made and, and, and feelers put out. But for the regular employee and for the, even the very senior manager up to the C-suite level, you wait for your offer letter. And then, then you can start, then you have the leverage. They want you. So even if they want you and they've indicated that you're the first choice, that's at least a little, of, little bit of leverage itself. And then you go in and start asking questions. First, you can do your research there. You can try to figure out who else works there and what they have. You, if it's a public company you can, and you're going to be a C-suite officer, you can go download the public documents. They're, they're the CEO and, the, and a couple of other executives employment agreements are public and uh, you do your best you can to inform yourself and then you make a judgment about how much leverage you have and one thing i'll say about that in just a second well i'll say it right now sometimes people under negotiate for themselves i see this happens all the time and it's and it's because they don't have full information sometimes about what the other side wants or how much leverage they have but sometimes it's about who they are as a person so i would uh, and some people are just risk averse but some people don't like to negotiate for themselves and I've had multiple EVPs of worldwide sales, now called CROs, often chief revenue officers, that can negotiate $100 million contracts for their company, can't negotiate their own deal. So I'm not a psychologist. I can't tell you why some people, it's very uncomfortable to negotiate. I can tell you if that's who you are, part of negotiating is to get some help, whether it's self-reflection, professional help, or just some wizened old person who does it before, so that you maximize your personal return and you don't under-negotiate for yourself. So when you're coming back to this, and, and you might have to take some feelers, you know, you might make, uh, you know, the other side, meaning the employer is not giving you, they're probably not giving you, it could be, but their, their bottom line. So the question is how you test it. A lot of times regions are different. So a person, an engineer might make more money here in Silicon Valley than they do in Pocatello, Idaho, and somewhere in between in Chicago. So you have to know what the market is, but somebody in that world is going to know for example, using the example before as a coder, coders talk amongst each other. So they know what kind of what, what they can de demand or request in their employment agreement and will sometimes use one against the other. You know, oh, my friend got this or, or that or maybe not even do that, but just go back and ask for more. So the other side can always say no. The biggest concern, of course, is that the other side will yank the offer because they're going to say, OK, you're too difficult. We don't want you. And that does happen, very, but it happens very rarely. And, and people's fear of that, pro that getting the offer yanked is is often causes them to under negotiate much more than it would really happen. And you think, think to yourself, if you go back and ask to try to negotiate something and some company doesn't want to hire you because you went and asked, do you want to work there? Even at the, at the most senior level, people ask, well, should I tell them I have a lawyer? And that's always a strategic question about when you tell your employer that you have a lawyer when you're doing a negotiation. But the board of directors of a company or a CEO, if they're doing the hiring, don't they want to have a shrewd employee? Because even if they have to do a respectful but long negotiation with, with their soon-to-be employee and have to give a little more than they want, they often walk away with a lot of respect for that person doing the negotiation. Why? Because they know as soon as they hire that individual, they're going to turn, that individual is going to turn around and represent the company in all its negotiations. So a shrewd board or a shrewd uh, management team actually wants people that know how to negotiate because once they're on board, they'll be negotiating for the company. Have you ever seen it where maybe someone pulls an offer letter because they didn't try to negotiate it? That I haven't seen. I have to say, you know, I, I see so many things over 25 plus years. I always, I'm always saying, well, now I've seen that. Now I've seen a new one, you know, because things always happen and negotiations and companies, as you know, are so, so diverse and people are so different. But I, I have to say that I've never seen one pulled because somebody didn't negotiate. But, you know, I'm sure you're going to have some listener out there that's going to start, you know, in your comments is going to be like, well, he doesn't know about this company or he doesn't know about, you know, Joe Smith or Jane Doe, you know, what they do. 
All right. So that's a challenge out there for our listeners. <laughs> if you've had an experience, please write in the comments or email me or, or go to our website. But Jotham, with all this, are you negotiating face-to-face? Are you negotiating over Zoom? Are you negotiating through Twitter? Like, how do, What's the best way to do these, these negotiations? Okay, let's put, let's put the pandemic and Zoom aside because I can tell you, and I talk about it in my book, multiple times over my career, I've counseled, it's, it's often a C-suite officer, um, get on the plane and fly across the United States of America to negotiate in person because the data is very clear. An in-person negotiation is you're more likely on your ass to get your ass, even if it's a back-end separation agreement, even if they fired you for incompetence, when you come in and try to negotiate a back-end separation agreement, the ask is more likely to be received well and given what you want or closer to what you want if it's in person. The next best thing is uh, by telephone, uh, and uh, but that's farther back. That's what the data shows, and much farther back is sending an email or a text. Okay, so e- very easy to say no to an email or text. Now, with the pandemic and post-pandemic, everybody's using Zoom. And I personally believe in-person negotiation is better than Zoom because you're sitting there, you're, people are across the table, you've got the same dynamic that it's hard to say no, or especially if they want you or want you just to sign a release even on the back end rather than the hiring. But I don't have any data. I don't know that data, I can't come here and say Zoom is, is worse than in-person negotiation. I just, that's my personal pro- proclivity, my personal belief, but I, I, don't, I haven't seen any study on that. Going back to the contracts themselves, are there any, with your 25 years experience, any kind of crooked terms or gotchas that people have shown you the, the documents are like, whoa, wh- what is this? The most crookedest terms that I think of is actually one that could probably affect every one of your listeners that doesn't have protection in their agreement, especially in a place where they're getting equity. A lot of stock option agreements that people are given, it says they don't, they don't read the documents. All right, and they get an offer letter, and the offer letter says, "Okay, you'll vest over a certain amount of time." Vesting meaning you, you have a right to those options. And let's just use classic Silicon Valley option: four-year option for a certain number of shares, one quarter vest after the fir- first year of cliff, and then it's rateable one forty-eighth the rest of until you, the rest of every month until you um, fully vest. The crookedest thing, in my view, is many of those options can be completely lost, completely wiped out. If there's a change of control in the company and the stock option plan, which is always referenced in the offer letter, but few people read the actual provision in it, the stock option plan, the equity plan of the company allows an acquirer to terminate the option on the change of control. So all of those people out there are getting all these options. And it often happens that they, let's say they work there for two years, company is sold, merger sold, and they lose the second half of their options. That, that's the crookedest thing. Another second, second crookedest thing, I'm not sure I ranked them in these orders. It depends on who's, what's affecting what. So I'm not saying that this in this sec, first second. That's a huge crooked thing. Second thing, in my view, that's crooked are arbitration agreements, which companies use to basically keep employees down and to reduce the, their losses on the whole. I don't mean it in any particular problem or case. And you see the pendulum sort of swinging at least a little bit in the other direction. Congress recently passed a law and the president signed a law that prohibits the enforcement of arbitration agreements for sex harassment cases, but not for everything else. California has passed a law that said no arbitrations in employment can be offered in employment, but that law was then suspended by a lawsuit that has gone up on appeal and it's before the the Ninth Circuit uh, of the legality of that issue. Uh, I'm pretty confident I just might get, I should, I said confident, I'm guessing that if it went to the Supreme Court, they would toss out that California law. So, but our arbitrations are also another example. Entrepreneurs, by the way, 
there are many gotchas representing the entrepreneurs mostly. I do represent companies and, and startups, often because the entrepreneur I've helped leave a company, they got forced out of a company, and they're like, don't ever let this happen again. Help me out again. Sometimes the contracts that entrepreneurs sign, uh, particularly when they take in outside investors, whether they're venture capitalists, whether they're shrewd angel investors, or whether they're private equity, they sign contracts that even though they might own most of the stock in the company, if they get, they get forced out, they have no control at all of the board. And, and there's a particular story in my book called Powerless that describes that. And that's happened multiple times. You know, my book has, besides being total nonfiction truth about how to negotiate like a CEO and taking, taking the reader from the beginning of their employment relationship uh, all the way to the end and then reincarnation and uh, you know, reincarnation, meaning finding another career and so forth, and things go wrong. There's 59 totally fictional stories in there that underscore what I wrote about. One of those is powerless. And uh, that's, that's a story about an entrepreneur who started a company who knows owned 80% of the stock of the company. But when he got forced out by his best friend, uh, I might add, and the investor, he had no ability to change the board of directors to, so that he could have control again. So a couple of things there. One, crooked number one with the company, when there's a new acquirer, those new shares vested being able to, or that part of that contract being able to terminate. I'm kind of curious there. I mean, you'd get so many employees upset when that happens. Wouldn't that kind of, I don't know, I almost want to say destroy that merger because you'd lose all these former employees. They'd be upset. I, I would just see the whole culture shift from maybe this happy-go-lucky workplace to you know, everyone above us are evil. I would think something like that would just change so much no one would want it to happen. Well, you're an investment banker. Sometimes companies aren't purchased for their employees. They might be purchased for their technology. They might be purchased for their customers. In some cases, they may purchase to kill the company because some competitor does it. So they might not want those employees. Now, I should also step back and say not every plan of every company has that. Some, some plans have just the opposite. They have acceleration on, on change of control. But uh, this happens all the time. And again, it's often up to the acquirer and the, and the board of directors. Right. And so it depends. It depends. If the acquiring company has exactly the few that you just asked me about, well, then what do they do? They keep that employee, they keep that option plan alive or they substitute equivalent options. That happens quite frequently as well. But, but would you want to be at risk if you're the employee and you help build this company? And, and it's a unicorn. So, and then they wants to be bought and you want to be at risk to, to worry about why the acquirer is hiring you. And maybe, in fact, they want half the people the company, but they've already done their, you do your investment banking, right? Before they, before the acquirer buys the, the company. The nice, friendly yeah, the nice, the, the nice, friendly, nice, friendly <laughs> one. But, but the company knows who it's going to, the acquirer knows who it's going to terminate. It's called economies of scale. That's what the, the economists would say. They know who they're going to, employment they're going to terminate. Let's just take a C-suite officer. They don't need the CFO. He's, he or she's on the way out. VP of business development. He or she's on the way out, right? There's a whole classic and it goes all the way down to the engineer. They may not need one or two groups. So those that they need, sure, they're going to put in even retention agreements, special retention agreements. They'll put in new option agreements. They'll put in substitute option agreements so these individuals continue to vest. But all the people they know they're getting rid of, all those employees, they're, if I can use the word, screwed. And so that's just one reason why everybody should read my book. Because if you go into a company at the first level, you're, out of a, you're just out of college. At least you can ask for a situation that says, uh, if, you, if we sell the company while I'm still vesting, either you 
retain my options in the new company or or you f- accelerate the, the my options so that I don't get I don't have to build this company and then lose my equity that I that I built. That's a simple thing to ask for. So but before you can ask for that, you have to know what the agreements say. And to know what the agreements say, you not only have to read your own employment agre- agreement or offer letter, that offer letter, I can tell you a one or two page offer letter offering, offering equity in, in Silicon Valley or anywhere in the country is almost always subject to an equity plan for the company and almost always subject to a stock option agreement or restricted stock agreement, depending on what you're getting. Well, you got to go read that. It's incredibly boring to do. But you got to go read that up, uh, the plan and the stock option agreement, and you can ask for them beforehand. They'll send them to you. But I can't tell you how many of your listeners, I'm sure, probably the majority of them, have never read their plan and, and didn't read their stock option agreement before they signed their offer letter. Not as easy to negotiate after you've signed your offer letter and you're working, right? And then what happens is, especially these days, you get the option agreement and you get the plan by electronically. You know, if you press a button or, or a tab and it'll download. I can assure you that most of the employees, unfortunately, do not download it. You had mentioned accelerated vested. There, there's some terms in the book such as single trigger, double trigger. Wh- what are those terms? What, you know, what are more favorable for employees? What should they be asking for? Okay, so let me just step back because I, I, there is a story in the book. Another one's one of those fictional Actually, stories. Actually, share one of these stories if, if you're okay there, with it. Uh, well, yeah, sure. I'm happy to. And, and you could go to the website for the book and see a couple of excerpts. But there's one story in the book where the exactly what we were asking about before, and then I'll answer your question on triggers. The CEO is in control of the company as it gets acquired. So the story there is, is on both ends of the spectrum is the name of the, the little, these are vignettes, right? Three, four, five page stories. So what she's doing is she's calling the mythical lawyer in this case, and she wants protection for herself. Why does she want protection for herself? Because she's making many millions of dollars in this transaction, but the acquirer is requiring her to revest some of her stock. She has to be there. And so she says, well, if they fire me, I want to make sure I get all the value of my stock. They can't take it away from me. But on the other hand, it's disclosed during this conversation with this mythical lawyer, mythological lawyer, mythical lawyer, that the lawyer is saying, well, what about the option plan? All your your employees that are now being acquired are going to lose all their options, what's not vested. They keep what's vested. They get paid out what's vested. They lose all the, and they're not vested. And that, that executive says they didn't negotiate for it, so they're going to lose it. Anyway, that's, uh, I, that's one of the stories that's in the, in the book. Read that and you'll understand like, the mentality of things that go on. And, and it, again, these are not true stories. These are, these are fictional stories I made up with 25 plus years of experience. So I've seen these kinds of genre, if you're using a book, kind of a book, of these genres that happen over and over again, these, these common events that happen over and over again. To answer your question now about single and double trigger, I think it was your question. So again, this is context dependent. What are we talking about? Generally, so let's just generally, single trigger means if you are terminated for any, uh, without cause typically in an agreement, or you have good reason to resign if you can negotiate that in. And what is good reason? Good reason is some trigger, like they mistreat you. They can't mistreat you. can't demote you. They can't make you go work in, in Uzbekistan. Um, you know, uh, if they ask you to do that, you would be able to resign and get your separation, severance agreement. So a single trigger is typically termination without cause, good reason. That's the trigger. And if that gets triggered, then you get whatever you've negotiated for separation pay and separation benefits, accelerated, accelerated vesting, for example. Double trigger typically means if there's a change of control in the company, that's the first trigger. So you, if you're terminated, your employment is terminated before a change of control, you get nothing. But if you have a double trigger and there's a change of control, then you, are, you hit the first trigger and the second trigger is typically termination of employment. And so if you are terminated 
uh, your employment is terminated after a change of control, that's the second trigger, then you will get your separation benefits. Now, sometimes single trigger in a change of control situation means change of control is the trigger. So, you, so some people have in their contracts that if there's a change of control in the company, I'll get X, Y, and Z, often accelerated vesting of equity, just because there's been a, a change of control, or in some cases, an IPO, public offering. If that happens, for example, someone might have in their contract, I get two years worth of vesting of my shares on the IPO. That, in that case, single trigger means the single trigger is change of control or IPO. Who do you think is better at, at making it through the, the corporate world? The person that's better at negotiating, maybe their, their contracts, that, or the person that's better at playing the Game of Thrones, the internal politics? Uh, that's all context dependent. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good question. And I, sometimes the person who plays the Game of Thrones survives very well. And sometimes they survive until some level and then they're terminated. Employment's terminated and they get nothing because they haven't protected themselves. On the other hand, sometimes the person that negotiates the protection rises to CEO. Sometimes they get kicked out. But I can tell you that people who have negotiated, I've had many clients over the years who've negotiated for protection, often with equity. This is with equity now. Then two years, they get terminated for one reason or forced out. And I'll speak about being you're having your employment terminated in just a second, if, you, if you're interested. But um, two, three, four, five years later, they make more money at the company they were fired from after like a year or two because they had protected themselves. And that equity, you know, five, four, five years later, the company sells or, or does something, does IPO. So they make more money from that company than other companies they've worked at for years and years and years and years and just didn't do as well over the years. So um, that's why you want the protection. And uh, let me just speak about um, being fired or being asked to leave. And this happens at every level, from the newbie, the new employee, mid-level managers, all the way, I have to say, to the CEO. People get fired for all sorts of reasons. Good reasons, reasonable reasons, reasons they should be fired, and for economically irrational reasons, reasons they should never be fired, right? So the classic example is somebody doesn't like you. And they fire you. They get a little uh, on the corporate ladder. They get just a little higher level on the corporate ladder, and they do a firing. There's a story in the book about that. I've had that happen multiple times. And, and there's nothing you can do about that. If somebody doesn't like you, it may have had nothing to do with anything you did at the work. It may be completely economically irrational. The shareholders might vote against you. Uh, might vote against the termination. Were they able to vote? But then they don't get to vote. Similarly, at the executive level, that happens all the time. And the classic example is new CEO gets comes into place. Male or female, doesn't matter. They want to bring in their whole team. So you could have a whole bunch of very good C-suite officers there, but that's not the team that the C new, new CEO wants. And some of the literature actually says, fire all those C-suite officers in the first 60 or 90 days and then go do the hiring. So now that's not all the literature. There's a couple of um, strategy companies that advise that. But that's a classic example. And that might be a completely economically rational hiring. I should also say, and there's a story in the book about this. It's called Reincarnation. These are, again, a, one of the 59 fictional stories. Sometimes there's a classic thing that happens here in Silicon Valley, and it happens at other places where there's a lot of venture capital. So there's, there's venture capital all over the country, but you know, I, I live in Silicon Valley, so I, so I like to talk to it, and we're, we're on the Silicon Valley uh, podcast. Uh, and that is, here's the classic example um, that happens. It's, like, it's pretty much VC-specific. Somebody gets fired. Just pick any C-suite officer. VP of marketing, EVP of marketing, EVP of sales, um, technology, their medical company, you know, the chief medical officer, CEO fires them. Okay. The board almost will always almost back the CEO almost all the time until the day they fire the CEO. All right. But, and that venture capital sitting on the board, you know, he represents one of the rounds of financing. He sits on the board, he votes for the firing. The firing is unanimous. 
the vote probably takes two minutes because the CEO has talked about this and called everybody up beforehand. Okay, three, four, five days later, a week later, two weeks later, the person who's been fired gets a call from the venture capitalist sitting on the board or the private equity guy sitting on the board. And the conversation is essentially, why are you calling me? And he says, well, you know, I have a bunch of other portfolio companies and I think you should really look at taking a job there or at least interview with them. And, the, and then the person who just got fired, he says, but you're on the board, you just fired me. And they say something to, you know, they say, well, it just didn't work out. It wasn't the best situation. But you know what? It might be a lot better at any of these other three companies. And what the, what the venture capitalist, the private equity uh, principal is telling you, the board member is basically saying, I had to back the CEO, but I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have done this, but for what the CEOs wanted to get rid of you for whatever reason, smart or not, but you're good enough that I might want you at one of my other portfolio companies. So there's a lot of dynamics that happen that you always have to be aware of. I want to talk more about that VC relationship for startups when, when they take money. But before that even, when, when is the right time to hire a lawyer? When should a lawyer get involved for? I mean, if you get terminated or in a contract agreement, when is it, when's too soon, when's too late? It's never too soon to hire a business lawyer who, who knows what your world is and, and uh, because then you're getting advice in the very beginning. Having said that, lawyers are expensive. People can't afford lawyers. And uh, so, so that's a personal decision about when you hire a lawyer. It's hard to answer that question. But for example, it doesn't matter whether you're just out of college here in, um, in, in any college in Silicon Valley or anywhere in the country, or whether you're a CEO who's experienced, I might add. If you're going into an employment relationship and you hire me, you're going to learn more. So you're getting more data, and the more information you have, the better you can negotiate. But you know, for example, I'm expensive, so would you want to do that? And so a lot of times I say I say to uh, I say to employees, even on the C-suite level, you know, you don't have to hire me until you get the offer letter, or you don't have to hire me until whatever else happens. Or, uh, but on the other hand, I say, you know, you're probably better off hiring me now, but I'm not going to tell you to spend your good money on me until there's some inflection point. So it's really context dependent on, on how much you want an advisor. What is it too late to hire a, a, a lawyer after you sign your release? Uh, which is, typically companies will want to pay you something on the back end, give you a separation agreement. Not if you get terminated for cause. And there are certainly a lot of companies that don't do that. But m- mature companies will often offer some sort of separation agreement because they want that release to never, you never hear from you again, essentially. If you sign that release and it becomes effective, then it's, in my view, too late to hire a lawyer. Now, that's almost the overwhelming amount of time. There are certain instances where you could potentially get out of the release or in certain jurisdictions, it would be important. You could still hire a lawyer. So I'm not giving legal advice here because I don't know any of your listeners' specific situation. But to my mind, you, if, if somebody calls me and they've signed a release that's, that's broad-based and there's nothing like untoward like they were, somebody put a gun to their head and they signed the release, then I, I basically, it's, it's, it's a hard road to whatever the road to hoe to, to do anything for them. Now, going back to the whole, the, that startup that receives outside money, that venture capitalist money for the first time, where, where are some, I almost want to say, I know we've already talked about gotcha and crooked term sheet there. Are there warning things that they should look for or, or things that will bite them later, such as the example of the founder that had 80% of the shares, but wasn't able to do anything even after he got let go? Uh, yes, they are in either the term sheet you have to look out for or the follow-on documents, right? Remember, it's the documents that the term sheet is, uh, uh, for, for those of you listeners who don't know, it's, it'll be a two or three or four page, five page, eight page, 10 page sort of outline of what the financing is going to be. And it usually says none of this is enforceable or an agreement except for the confidentiality provision. And there'll be a provision often you can't negotiate with anybody else for some period of time. And then come the follow-on documents. 
both of those, the term sheet, which has to be negotiated, and then the follow-on documents have to be negotiated as well. But the term sheet, there could be many things in the term sheet that could, you know, if I'm representing a founder, a founder has to look out for, one of which is losing, losing board control. You lose board control as a founder, you're basically done. Um, you don't have control of your company anymore. There are three board. If there's a five seat board and there are three members who are not loyal to you, um, you could be fired at any time for any reason or no reason at all. Almost always in, in Silicon Valley. And then if you have that situation, as a lot of founders do, and they're asked by the venture capitalists to revest some of their equity. So investor says, "I'm not going to put five million dollars or ten million dollars into this company unless you take all of your hundred percent equity and you start revesting it." And that means that equity is at risk. That equity is going to be at risk. You need to have a very strong uh, equity or employment agreement to protect that equity. Otherwise, let's just say you own 80% of the company and you agree to vest all of it again. And then they fire you after one month. Well, then you're going to lose all, your whole company. So there are many. That's just one example. There are many other examples. The two examples, board control, revesting of equity. Um, there are many other examples because uh, I, I, I look at term sheets all the time. And uh, in fact, this week. I looked at two different ones. So um, both representing the company, because the company has to look out for itself, and also representing the individual, the founder. You had mentioned the the board, you know, three of the five, make sure they're loyal to you. But there's no way to have contractual loyalty. Is there any advice you'd know or could give to founders when picking those boards in the, you know, these, I'm not even sure how to say it, but yeah, they're more likely to stay loyal to you than not. Uh, for sure. And, and first of all, let's let's step back. When you're a board of director, you have a fiduciary obligation to the shareholders, uh, certainly to the common shareholders. If it's a Delaware company, it's a contractual right as to the, to the preferred shareholders. So you cannot contract. It's one of the things, going back to the beginning of this um, um, interview, uh, our discussion, you can't contract out of your fiduciary obligations, for the most part, in a, in a corporation, in a secret. So no, you cannot have a contract that says, I can't have a contract that says, Sean is going to vote whichever way I want it to vote on the board of directors. So now having said that, there's a couple of things that a founder can do. One is you can have super majority control. So uh, for example, um, you can have a, a, a company where you get five votes as the, as the director and everybody else on the board gets one vote. That way you can really control the decision of the company. Now, when you're talking about board of directors, typically what happens is as investment comes in, those investors want a guaranteed seat. For sure, you don't control those seats. So if you're looking at, let's say, a series A round of investor and a series B round, then there's five-person board, those people are definitely not going to be loyal to you. They're loyal to their, they should be loyal to all the shareholders, but what they're really loyal to is their own limited partners in their funds. That's who they're loyal. So then you're set in this example. The founder, however, can put people that are, are lockstep with the founder on the board to keep control. The best thing is to have super majority control, say five votes, four votes, seven votes, whatever it is. The next step is you put people that you are close to on the board or even independents. But as long as you have continuing ability as in the common stock, in the common seats, to and you have control, I have to know what the cap table says, capitalization table, as long as you can remove those directors if they force you out. So let's say you're a founder, you point to two other people on your, on your board. So now you have three that supposedly are loyal to you. One's you, so I hope you're loyal to yourself. And then you have two that aren't. Now let's say they turn on you. Those two turn on you and there's a vote four to one, they fire you. You're the CEO and you're fired. You're an at-will employee in most states and certainly in California. They fire you. You're out, right? You are not CEO of the company. But if you have the ability, if let's say you owned 80% of the stock, you have the ability to remove those two directors and point to other directors. You could appoint your, your, your significant other and your brother or sister on the board. Well, and then, then you're definitely out. <laughs> and, then, and, then they, and then they fire the new CEO and they replace you. 
Okay. That, that gotcha, that crooked contract that I was describing in the entrepreneurial world, which is why every entrepreneur should read my book and then go get a lawyer before, you know, a lawyer to help them. All right. To read this is the, is the line that's only recent. It's of the last three, four, five, six years, but now it's become more prevalent. The line in the a voting agreement, essentially. It's one of the documents that comes along and in the contract itself, could be in the stock purchase agreement that says, but it's usually in the voting agreement that says the three common seats in this example will be voted on by the common stockholder who is currently providing services to the company. Not just the common stockholder, but those three seats, it's in the voting agreement, that's where it is. Those three seats uh, are appointed by the common stockholder who is currently providing services to the company. And services is defined in this case as employment, not as a director. Currently providing employment, employee has an employment relationship with the company. Are you following that? Yep. All right. That's clever. So in the, in the example, yeah, it's clever, especially as an investment banker, if you're, uh, if you're representing somebody who's coming in and wants to protect, the, the, first of all, the venture capitalists see this as protection for themselves. They don't want to have a crazy board member who they just fired and can't run the company, then come back and... and, 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 and God forbid, shoot their LPs in the foot by by taking back control of a company just because they started the company and owned the company. I mean, that's what the investors thinking. I want to have full control. In this example, and and it goes back to that um, powerless example that I was telling you about the, in the in the book, the, the story in the book. If they have those words in there, the person who owns eighty percent of the of the company, this the common stock, but that common stock he may he or she may own seventy five percent after investment and dilution of the entire company has no control. Who's the person with control? The person with control is somebody who's exercised 100 shares of stock in that example, but still an employee of the company. Because the day the board votes four to one in this example, including those two people who have turned on you, four to one against you, you're no longer an employee. You're an ex-employee. And with that line that I was just describing, which is more prevalent than ever, and it was only invented, I don't know, five, 10 years ago, something, invented by big Silicon Valley law firm. <laughs> So I'm pretty sure I know exactly who invented it, but anyway, that'll be for another day. Without, with, without that line in there, in other words, the common stock, votes is the common stock. When you own 80% of the common stock, you can replace those directors and appoint your own director. If the voting agreement says, and you signed the voting agreement, so you're stuck with it, it says um, you can only stock, the directors can only be removed or, or replaced and reappointed by, by stockholders holding common stock who are currently employees of the company. And you were the former CEO and founder and you were fired. The moment you're fired, you're not an employee of the company anymore and you get totally screwed. So that's one example of, of, of why you have to read the documents. Now, those documents, going back to one of your other questions, that's not going to be in the term sheet. So it's, it's complicated. So the term sheet has other things you have to be concerned about, the revesting and so forth. And then you have to know what the hundreds of pages of documents that follow a series A investment, a series B investment, a financing round of private equity investment, even angel investors who are shrewd know, know what to do. I still, that's, that line is just so clever. But um... <laughs> it's, clever. it's clever for you. Uh, it's not so clever for the founder who's you know, kept the lights on for years and finally has a company that's really going well. And then they get forced out of their own company. I can't tell you how many times that happens, often for economically rational reasons. But, but sometimes, let's say that founder is revesting all of his shares. Okay, let's say he gets fired or she gets fired. All right. And, and they haven't revested all their shares. So let's just make believe that the shares that they haven't revested are 20%, 20% of the company they've lost. But who gets those 20%? You're smiling. You're going to figure this out right away. Who gets the 20%? Doesn't it go back into the, the the pool? But it's it's actually in the treasury. I mean, 
basically so, the ownership of the company now, the people that are already invested, it, it's a higher percentage. Exactly. Who's sitting? Who's who's the who's board. sitting on the board? <laughs> those those limited partners, those funds that have invested, and all the other employees, and including the other employee who might have stabbed you in the back. The twenty percent goes back into the treasury, but everybody. That means that everybody, exactly what you just figured out, exactly um, everybody else has 20, their stock is 20% more valuable, right? Well, you don't think, uh, do you think that for a minute, somebody who runs a venture capital fund who's sitting, a managing director of a venture capital fund who's sitting on your board doesn't know that? Of course they know that. See, that's Game of Thrones. So <laughs> negotiate like a CEO is protecting yourself on day one from that happening. I'm not saying, and I, listen, there are a lot of reasons why you'd want to fire a, an employee for good, for good reasons. They're a bad employee. Um, they don't they don't fit in the right place. Some founders say, "Listen, I, I'm great starting a company. I, I'm great getting revenue up to five million. I can't possibly run a company after five million in revenue." And they actually step back because they're really mature. So the stories of founders are those that that get forced out for good reasons, and they get forced out for incredibly terrible reasons. And so, but as a founder, you want to protect yourself from both those situations. Okay, so say you're in a situation that's not working out for you. You're thinking, okay, you know, I've had my time here. It's time to move on. What's better, to quit or get fired? And I know it's probably case by case, but in general, is there, is there anything that you should think of? I mean, now, just an example, I had a buddy, another investment bank. He was trying to get fired for so long because of the clawback provision and some other things. So his situation, getting fired, was 10x better than, than quitting. In, in some situations, I mean, is there any advice you'd have for that? So it's all context dependent. And, and so your listeners understand, and I'm just intuiting here because I, I don't even know who your friend is, but I've, but I've been doing this long enough. Uh, what's happening there is if that individual is fired without cause, as he was hoping to be fired, he would probably receive all of his equity or all his compensation payments. But if he walked out the door and quit, he loses all of that. And so that person says, it's not working out here. I want you to fire me because I'm going to get a big payment here in the form of either either fully vested equity or some kind of compensation, or in some places with the iBanks, it's essentially cash that they're vesting in cash. So it's one of those, I'm pretty sure I could be wrong. What about it? But I won't but, go into detail. But I won't but go to, got, yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, I've been doing this long enough. All right. So it's really context dependent. That's telling your listeners because it depends on what their contracts are and where they're, what they've got. So let, let me, let me tell you even more sort of, Elaborate on that. A lot of people say, and it's probably true, it's easier to get a job when you have a job. That's not, you know, not always true in my in, in my experience. Lots of my clients they call me six months later after being fired, and they say this is the best thing that ever happened to me, and they all sort of get jobs. But having said that, the classic is don't quit until you get another job. And so that could be in a lot of situations, particularly if you're worried about your family or you don't have enough money to, to go to the next job. Secondly, if your company doesn't have a history of giving separation agreements when they terminate you. Third, there's no, uh, for larger mature companies, there's no ERISA plan, which is a kind of federal approved plan that, that guarantees you a certain amount of severance. That could be the right situation or the ERISA plan's not generous enough. Uh, on the other hand, if you have like your, your friend had that you know, he had a contract of some sort, or if you have an employment contract that guarantees you good benefits on separation, like many CEOs have, then they want to get fired because they, they triggers all their benefits. And I've had over the years, multiple clients call me, I'm not getting along with the CEO, or I'm not getting along with the board of directors. You wrote me a great employment agreement, or you helped me write a great employment agreement. If I get fired, I'll get X, Y, and Z. I want to get fired. How do, how, how do I get fired? All right. So that's, on the other hand, there are lots of people who in there, doesn't matter what they have, 
They just don't want to get fired and they want to go from one job to another. Um, there are other considerations, medical considerations that have to do with COBRA and so, and so forth. So it really is a, it is context dependent and it's individual dependent. I would give different advice to different clients based on what their fact pattern is and situations. You mentioned COBRA. I'm sure our audience is going to try to look that up. What is it depends on COBRA? What does that, what does that mean? COBRA is the federal law. It stands for a whole bunch of things, but it's the federal law that requires companies that are giving medical benefits or have a medical plan almost always, not in every situation, but almost always. Those companies, when they terminate their employees, are required to provide their employees the right to buy the same medical benefits for, I think it's 18 months. Now, those medical benefits could be expensive because if you're an employee, sometimes you're paying for no part of your medical benefits. Sometimes you're paying for some small portion. Let's say the, the premium is actually 1000 for you and your family, but you're only paying for 200 the, the COBRA requires the company or an administrator for the company to give you that same plan, say $1,000 in this example, but you have to pay the $1,000. You don't just get to pay the 200 unless you have a professional prenuptial agreement that allows you to do that. And so- uh, California has its own version of COBRA as well, post-employment medical protection, as do other states. It depends on where you are. And then there are all sorts of specifics. But if you are terminated, even if they're, even if they're terminating you for embezzlement, you have the right uh, in most circumstances, and if the company's continuing on and it's continuing to give health care to its employees, you have the right to buy your health care for the next 18 months. All right. And Jotham, we have a little bit of time left. Is there another story you might want to share with us from, from your book? And you know, if not, What's the best way for our audience to learn more about you, your book, and everything you're working on? The story that I would share with you is one I don't talk about too much in interviews. It's, it's towards the end of the book, and it's long live, and it's got a long name. And that the story there is about being aware if you're going to work abroad, which is why I bring this up, because I know you worked five years in, in, in China, and you lived a couple of years in Costa Rica. So if I got the book and I read the title, I could read it here, but it's basically a story of a guy gets posted in the, in the Netherlands, right? That's the employees asked to work abroad in the Netherlands, Holland, you go into the land of the Dutch, right? They speak Dutch, whichever one you want to do, Amsterdam. All right. So he goes there for his multinational and he basically, and he's anti-king. This is this, he's anti-monarch, can't stand. So the lawyer, the mythological or myth, the, the, you know, the would-be lawyer in this, in this example says, well, you have to be careful. And he gives the name of the monarch. The Netherlands is a monarchy. If you speak poorly of the monarch, you can wind up in jail in the Netherlands, our NATO ally, for five years. All right. And if you speak poorly of the queen, I think the monarchy is now king, but I go back and forth. But let's put it this way. If you speak poorly of the daughter or the son of the monarch, it's currently, I think, a daughter is in line for the throne. If you say curse words about them and whatever it is, you can wind up in jail for four years. So not the same five years for the king or the queen, but four years. And uh, in the story... It's, what is this underscoring? It's underscoring that if you're getting a job abroad, you also better know what the laws are of the countries that you're living in, not just the tax laws, but all the other laws. And so the, the lawyer says, well, at, at least if you were in Thailand and you insulted the king of Thailand, you'd wind up in jail for, I think it's 10 or 15 years. So it's underscoring what I'm writing about in that section of the book, which is how to negotiate employment agreements when you're going abroad, which you have to look out for and so forth. So where you can find more information on, on me and my book is at the book's website, uh, negotiatelikeaceobook.com. So that's negotiatelikeaceobook.com. Got to get the book in there. And there's a bunch of information on the book. You can buy the book from the website, which is going to Amazon. You could also go to Amazon if you wanted to buy the book and, um, and either type in my name or type in the book's name, negotiate like a CEO, and it will immediately pop up. 
and you can get it either in electronic version or in paperback version. So, and if uh, you want to learn more about me, there's a contact or get in contact with me on the book's website. There's a contact page and you can fill out the, you know, the, the, the sort of email form. It sends an email and we get it. Fantastic. And for our listeners out there, Jotham has given us a couple copies of his book. If you write a review on one of the podcast platforms that we're on, which we are on pretty much all of them, take a screenshot, email it to us. You can get us through our website, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. We'll put your name in a raffle. We will raffle off these two books the week or two after the interview goes live. And um, when I'm not here as the host of the podcast, the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital, and secondaries. Once again, reach out to me, find me on LinkedIn. I'd love to have a conversation. But with that, Jotham, I really enjoyed reading your book. I mean, you saw the version I had. I underlined, starred everything. And I love that little clever line that you said. I'm going to look for that. But I'm just very happy for the interview. So Jotham, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thanks so much for having me on your show, Sean. It's great to be here in Silicon Valley. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.